Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship. My name is Thomas. I'm part of pastoral staff here. We're glad you could join us today. Again, reminder that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper by having lunch together in the cafeteria. We hope if this is your first Sunday that you could come. If this is your first Sunday, we actually have a welcoming table that we want to invite you to come and meet other members. So if you're new, if you're visiting, there's a little signage that's going to be there. We hope you could sit and join and meet with other folks in our church. And also for our members, if we can remember the Lord's Supper lunch, this is the one Sunday we ask that we could not just sit with only with our friends, but also those who might be less familiar or those who are just part of our church to invite them over into your table. It's the one Sunday where we want to practice genuine fellowship together. So please join us for lunch after service today. Also, for those of us here, you might know if you've been in our church for a while, we've been going through a Bible reading plan this year where we're going through the entire Old Testament. We should be finishing Genesis this week. And a lot of people who I hear have been reading it. It's been encouraging hearing everyone reading it. But also, there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens in Genesis. And that's just Genesis. Like, when you go through the Old Testament, there's a lot of interesting stories that we might have questions about. And what are we going to do with those questions? And what we want to do is try to find a way to help our church to have a means to understand what we're reading. And so we're actually, on the screen here, we're actually going to be doing in the next few days um, uh, a podcast where we want to read scripture. I think it's on the graphics on there, Aaron. Uh, we want to uh, have an opportunity where if anyone has any questions about what you're reading, that you could submit any of those questions. And then myself and Pastor Sam, we're going to go through a podcast and just for like 20 minutes go through all your questions, answer it together. So if you ever find yourself like, what is this passage saying? Or if your community group goes, what is this passage talking about? There's a space for us to really submit those, and we could talk about it as a church. So hope you guys could tune in for that. Uh, we'll see how it goes, and we're going to hope launch that very, very soon. Also, been part of our church this past season. You know that 2024, we have been dedicating it to what we call a year of prayer, where we want to create a culture of prayer personally and corporately. We've been going through what we call different types of prayers. It's on the screen what we've been showing about talking prayer, asking prayer, listening prayer, unceasing prayer, and corporate prayer. Or another way to phrase it is talking to God, talking with God, listening to God, being with God, and doing this together. Parts one and two, we learned how to pray from Jesus himself, how he practiced prayer, how he taught prayer. Then last week, we looked through the book that shaped Jesus' prayer life, the Psalms, and we talked about what prayer looks like there. Today, we're going to learn about prayer from probably the most prominent follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul. So if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. It's also in the program. We'll be looking at the ESV version for today. And here at our church, when we read the scriptures, we believe our God is alive and is speaking. So can we all rise together as we read from 1 Thessalonians So verse 16 to 18, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me read that one more time since we have space. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we continue to learn about prayer May we, O oh God, be still for a moment, recognizing you're here. Your spirit is here, moving and stirring in our hearts. And help us, O oh Lord, to not just experience this now, but to learn how we can experience this, O oh Lord, throughout the week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Not sure if you ever gone through this phase that I went through, but if you grew up the church, you might have. There's always a phase I think people go through where they want to learn 
how to play the guitar. I know I went through that phase, and that happened for me when I went to this retreat in high school. I remember the moment was there's, you know, in between, like, the service times, you just see a couple of guys just sitting there just jamming on the guitar, and just producing, like, music, just riffing off each other, and then everybody's kind of surrounding them, like, watching them. And I remember me, I would be watching those guys playing the guitar, jamming, and I'd see everybody watching them, and i think, I want to learn how to play the guitar. And so I remember when I tried to learn how to play the guitar, it wasn't as simple as it looked like. And I think because we all know if you try anything, especially if it's something that's really, like, challenging or something that produces something great, anything is difficult to practice in the beginning. It's really hard to get started, and it takes steps to get better. And so when you try to play the guitar for the first time, it's just noise. You just don't know what to do it's because it's hard, and it takes steps to get to the place where we see musicians get to. So, for example, when you first learn guitar, what's the first thing people teach you? to read the chords, you have to learn the basic chords, G, C, D, just learn those chords that are there. Then after that, you learn how to strum, fast songs, slow songs, you just learn the strumming motion. And then if you keep going and you get advanced, there's finger picking you have to learn as well. Then there's scales you learn. And if you get really advanced, there's music theory. And a lot of us, if you're like me, you just get stuck in the beginning. You're stuck with the chords. And right now, I've been playing guitar for about 15 to 20 years that you would not be able to tell that I've been playing for 15, 20 years. I am stuck at the chords. It's really hard for me still. It's, it's really unfortunate because my son, he's really good at drums. And he's like, let's play this song, Dad. I'm like, I don't know how. <laughs> like, I, I'm limited to like 10 songs in the little playbook that we have. And I don't really produce beautiful music because for me, I just kind of stopped at one stage of playing guitar. And the reason why I bring that up is because a prayer is kind of like that. The practice of prayer, it's very similar to anything else we do in all of life. It's very hard in the beginning, and it takes steps in order to make beautiful music. And this should humble all of us. If you find that prayer, it's important, but it's really hard for you, you're still probably a beginner in prayer. We should all be humbled when it comes to prayer, because if it's hard for you, that probably means we have a lot more to learn and a lot of ways to grow in prayer. What does it look like, though, to grow in prayer? Teresa of Avila, she's an author who lived a long time ago, and she wrote a lot about this idea of prayer. She's someone who prayed a lot, and she compared praying to, like, watering a garden, where your soul needs prayer just like a garden needs water. And she describes, though, there's different ways to water a garden that parallel what prayer looks like for people. And these are kind of the stages that she describes. Here's the first stage of prayer that she describes. The first one is, it's, on, it's a visual here. It's a prayer of like where it looks like you're drawing water from a, like a well with a bucket. Is that picture up there? No, if you go back one, Aaron. There should be another picture. It'll show up. Anyways, imagine you're at a well and you're carrying a bucket. There we go. Oh, no, not that. Imagine you're just carrying a bucket. Forget the wheel. There's a bucket that you're carrying. You need to draw it out. If you pray like that, what happens is, or if you draw water like that, it's hard, it's laborious, and you can't draw much water, and it's just really tiring. And for a lot of us who are beginners in prayer, that's what it feels like. We are people who are grabbing the bucket, drawing water, it's tiring, it's hard, and it's not very refreshing because we don't draw that much water. But keep praying, and you get to the second phase, which is this right here, which is, you're, it's almost, almost like praying with a water wheel, 
It's where you have an instrument, and it, takes, it still takes effort, but a little bit less effort. You're gathering a little bit more water. And this is how it feels for those of us who made prayer a discipline, where we're just kind of used to praying. It's something that's our morning routine that's there. It's a little bit less effort. We're used to doing it. And you might find prayer to be helpful at this stage. Like, oh, it's, it's not refreshing, but at least it's helpful. But keep praying, and something interesting happens that Teresa Vila says. It's this third way of watering the garden which is, uh, it's like a stream of water that pours into a garden. It's almost like this type of water that's gushing in. It's actually, you don't really have really little effort to create that stream. The water is just kind of steadily flowing. And this is people who habitually pray, where you're just, your soul is just filled with streams of water. And it takes very little effort to pray when you're at this stage. And prayer actually tastes kind of refreshing. And if you keep praying, this is where the final stage, Teresa Vila says, she calls it abundant rain, where rainfall just falls into the garden. There's no effort on your part, and the water is just overflowing. This is people whose prayer life, it's not just, they don't just pray, they are like praying people. It's part of their culture of their life. It's not something you do, but it's a way of being, and you're just overflowing with life when you are in this mode of prayer. Now, here's the problem for a lot of us. For all of us here today, we are like that first way of gardening, where we are people who are drawing a bucket, filling it with water, lo lots of effort, really hard, very little refreshment coming. Prayer is really hard for us. It's like that bucket. That's how we experience prayer. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we grow from that? How can we grow where prayer is not just this bucket, but it's advancing where it feels more and more refreshing, where it's like streams of water just flowing to your soul, where it's like refreshing every time you go into that? Is that even possible? And what I want to introduce is a type of prayer that actually explains it is possible if you pray like this, and we call it unceasing prayer. First Thessalonians Paul writes about this idea of unceasing prayer. He's writing to a church in Thessalonica that he planted years ago. And the chapter we just read in chapter 5, Paul, he ends this letter with a final exhortation to the community. And he tells them this interesting line about praying without ceasing. Now, I don't know about you, but that line I've heard before, it stood out to me before, and I don't know often what that means. Are we supposed to, when we pray without ceasing, quit our jobs? Are we supposed to join a monastery? Like, what is Paul talking about? And because a lot of us here, because we don't know how to practically apply what Paul is saying here, we just dismiss it as hyperbole. We think, oh, Paul, there you go again, just telling us you this crazy Christian life, but, you know, he's just trying to be exaggerative. However, if you take that stance, you have a problem because it's everywhere, the idea of praying all the time. Like it's all over the Bible, not just in First Thessalonians. For example, Paul writes again, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Oh, there we have again, pray all the time. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul writes, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. On every occasion. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray. So this idea of prayer, not just being this thing you do, but this thing you always do, we encounter that throughout the Bible. And the question we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean, though, to pray without ceasing? How do we do it? Like, what does it actually look like? And why do we need this? And so I want to talk about this today and this to note, you know, it's not meant to be a, 
a way of praying to condemn us because I'm sure some of us, man, we just started praying. But I want to show like what it could look like for us if you keep going. And I hope for some of you where you're just used to your prayer routine, I want to like break that box for you. And I think the way we break that box is understanding this practice of unceasing prayer. So we're going to look at it in three ways. Number one, we're going to talk about what is unceasing prayer. Secondly, how do we practice unceasing prayer? And then lastly, why should we practice unceasing prayer? So what is it? How do we do it? Why should we practice it? First, what is unceasing prayer? Paul, in the, our chapter here in 1 Thessalonians, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica because this community, they are experiencing persecution and they need instruction. What do we do in this situation? They're a new church. What are we supposed to do in light of the situation that we are in? Imagine us coming to Buena Park High School. You come and there's all these protesters going, you suck, you Christians suck. All the signs are being smashed all the time. They send a complaint to the Buena Park mayor saying, do you know there's a church that's meeting at this high school? If you own a business, they find your business, giving you bad Yelp reviews, going, he's a Christian, he's weird. Imagine if that's happening. It's like, what should we do? Should we call the cops? Should we get revenge? Like, what should we do in response to persecution like that? And that's kind of what the church in Thessalonica is going through. What should we do in the midst of all this stuff happening? And Paul, he gives these final exhortations in chapter 5, and part of it is found in verse 16 to 18. Let's look at it one more time. Paul says, hey, for you guys, in the light of this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. The church is meant to be light and salt in the world. And if you practice these characteristics, Paul is saying you're going to be so countercultural that you're going to stand out in the midst of persecution but you have to do these things in order to stand out in that way. First, Paul says, rejoice always. Celebrate, to take pleasure in life. Paul says, find joy. This is not a feeling, it is a command. Find and choose joy in the midst of the bad Yelp reviews, in the midst of the smash signs that's going on. Be joyful people. Secondly, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. Even though this is not the ideal circumstance, give thanks. Not for it, that's not what Paul says, but give thanks in all circumstances, there are always things you could give thanks for in the midst of life not going your way. And again, those first two make a lot of sense. Got it? It's hard, but that's what followers of Jesus, that's what we ought to do. It's this last one that's a tricky one that we're focusing on today. And pray without ceasing. Again, it makes sense if it says, hey, pray. But this final part is the confusing part. Without ceasing. What does that mean? The Greek word is a little bit tricky. Different uh, Bible translations translate differently. The CSB calls it constantly. The NLT describes it as never stop. The Message Bible describes it as all the time. ESV is described as without ceasing. But what does Paul mean by this? And if you're like me, a lot of us look at this going, oh, so Paul means I am to pray 24-7. That's impractical because when I think of prayer, I think of this. Go to the next slide. There's a picture. That's what we think of, right? When I pray, I clasp my hands, I close my eyes, and I don't know, what, you, what do you think about when you pray? Like, when you're doing that, like, what do you think about? Like, for me, I know, like, growing up, I just thought, like, you know, God, he's, like, out there. So I'm almost, like, portaling him, like, trying to figure him out, like, you know, bringing myself to that place where he is in the universe. And it's, like, this formal time of, like, prayer, like, dear God. And when I do that, again, nothing's wrong with that. It's good. It's a form of prayer that a lot of us are used to. And that's what we imagine prayer is. And that's why the idea of unceasing prayer seems very impractical. How am I to do this 24-7? But one thing that's helpful to realize is that this form of prayer, even though there's nothing wrong with that, it's a form. 
In fact, it's a modern form of prayer. Do you know when people started praying like this? It's not in the Bible. It started in the 1800s. You know why people did that? It was for the unruly children because they're so distracting, like touching each other. Like the teacher's like, stop, put your hands together and close your eyes and let's pray. And that's what, that's the form. And that became the practice of the modern church to this day. Where prayer is a time where we close our hands together, we close our eyes, we get into that portal to God, and we pray. But in the first century, you know, they prayed really differently. When Jesus, the way Jesus prayed, the way Paul prayed. This is the way Jewish people prayed. Eyes open, hands up, and that's how they pray. When I do premarital counseling with people, some of you guys know this, when I have them, I have them pray together, I have them face each other, I go, let me pray for you guys. They'll immediately close their eyes. I'm like, don't close your eyes, keep it open. And they'll look at each other, I'm just praying for them. It's so weird. So weird, because we're not used to praying that way. The reason why Jewish people in the first century, they would pray with their eyes open, is because they're not thinking God is out there and I have to transport my mind. God is everywhere. And they're just praying like God is here. And that's what prayer looked like. Hands open, eyes open, praying this way. Again, I'm not saying that's the right way to pray. I'm not saying that's the only way to pray. But when you understand prayer in that form, what Paul is talking about makes a little bit more sense. The idea of unceasing prayer. Remember, prayer, we defined it a few weeks ago. Prayer is not just talking to God, but it is being with God. It is not just a conversation with him, but it is being in God's presence. And so what does praying without ceasing mean? If I could just give a very simple definition, I'd describe it like this. Praying without ceasing is living in the constant awareness of the presence of God. Meaning Paul is saying always be aware of God's presence. Be in that prayerful mode 24-7. That's what prayer with unceasing, what he's talking about. Jesus has a different way to describe it in the Gospel of John. Abide. Abide in the vine. Be present with God. Be, keep him in your constant awareness. That's what we're talking about here. When I go on trips, sometimes I'll take a trip to a conference or I'll go somewhere with friends. Oftentimes when I go... I'll look at a beautiful scenery like a mountain or some type of greenery shrub, and I'll take a picture, not because I care about it, but I know my wife, she loves those things. I'm very aware of Lena the whole time when I'm traveling, and so I'll take pictures of those things. Also, if I go to like a restaurant and I see things I want to eat, I'm very mindful of the prices because I'm very aware of Lena. I'm very aware that I'm still married and I have to watch out for my budget. And that's kind of what's going on. It's like, in the, even though Lena's not with me, my wife is not present, I'm aware of my relationship with her. I'm aware of the fact that she is present in my life, and it kind of shapes the way I live, even though I'm away from her. And that's kind of what praying without ceasing means. You're doing everything in life with the kind of awareness to God as you're doing it. Henry Nouwen, he's a theologian, he describes it like this. He says, quote, to pray, I think, it does not mean to think about God in contrast to thinking about other things or to spend time with God instead of spending time with other people. Rather, it means to think and live in the presence of God. All our actions must have their origin in prayer. Praying is not an isolated activity. It takes place in the midst of all things and affairs that keep us active. That's what we're getting at here. So here's a quick question for us. How many of you live this way? 
How many of you have the presence of God in your life throughout the day? If you're like me, for a lot of us, at best, the presence of God is there in the morning for those 10 minutes where you spend time in prayer. Again, some of us, you have a routine to pray or you've adopted our church's practice of prayer where we pause, we read our scripture, we pray, silence and solitude, 10, 15 minutes, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And if you're a chef, you go into your kitchen, you start going crazy on your coworkers. If you're a mom, you start getting angry at your kids. You start living the normal way you live without that prayer time. The presence of God is gone. It's only that 10-minute routine. But the rest of the day, you're doing your own thing. I think for a lot of us here, you know what prayer is like? The way Jesus functioned, he's like our yoga teacher. Every morning we do 10, 15-minute yoga exercise. Where, oh, that was really good for me. And you go the rest of your day just the way you normally would. And the reason why when you keep doing that, why that's not really good is your life slowly becomes, without knowing, this spiritual secular dichotomy where you have peace and patience and God is real for 10 minutes. And then the rest of your day, you're just anxious and angry and worried like you normally are. And the reason why we do that is because you put prayer in this box. Prayer is like this box morning routine. And when you put it in this box where I pray in the morning and that's kind of just it, it becomes, without even knowing, this checklist just to do. And prayer is relegated to become this discipline where you're doing something for God. Versus unceasing prayer, what that's meant to do is to break you out of that box. Where it's not just contained in those 10 minutes in the morning. But unceasing prayer is meant to be where that bucket gets shattered and streams of water can just be there pouring all day. Where prayer, it's not just a discipline that you're doing for God. But it is when you are with God. It is a relationship, a constant awareness of him. Do you practice prayer this way? Do you sense God's presence the whole time in the day? Or is it just this boxed routine in your life? This is where we need unceasing prayer. Because the more you connect with God, the more that you feel love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, not just for 10 minutes, but potentially for all 24 hours. And that begs the big question, right? Well, what does this look like? How do we practice unceasing prayer? How can we grow in constant awareness of God's presence? That leads to the second point. How do we practice unceasing prayers? Uh, for all the married couples here, if you're single, this is good advice too, but especially for all married couples, I remember I saw this article that just caught my eye. The title of the article, or at least the subtitle was, Married Couples, if you do this one single practice, it will save you thousands of dollars in marriage counseling. Meaning, for a lot of us who are married, if we're in trouble, we, have to, we go see marriage counseling. It's kind of something just to get us back on track, to help us with our issues. But this article is saying, hey, you could save thousands of dollars on that if you just do this one thing. And at first I thought this was a spam email. I'm like, what is this one thing? But it came from the Gottman Institution. If you don't know the Gottman Institution, they're like the experts on like what predicts divorce, what predicts successful marriages. And what they said was, here is the one thing that is a surefire way of your marriage being strong and you don't need any therapy the rest of your life. And it's not hard. It's very simple. Here it is. Spend 15 minutes every day connecting with your spouse. If you just spend 15 minutes every day connecting with your spouse, it is statistically proven your marriage will turn out to be very healthy. Just 15 minutes a day. And if you want to be more specific, what does that 15 minutes look like? Here's how it's broken down. Not just in one sitting, 
But here's how the Gottman Institute breaks it down. Two to three minutes, spend time with a meaningful goodbye. Before they go to work, don't just disappear in the garage, but spend a meaningful time just saying, hey, what's your day look like? Say goodbye to them. After work, when you come back, dinner time, before dinner, after dinner, whatever you like, just spending a little bit of time, like 10, 15 minutes or so, reunion is what they call it, where you just go through your day. How was your day? How are you feeling? What was work like? What are you thinking through? And then sometime later before you go to bed, some type of affection or some type of affirmation. If you do those things, just 15 minutes or so every day, you will have a healthy marriage. It doesn't have to be intense, just intentional. It doesn't have to be long, just consistent. It does not have to be therapy, just honesty. And the reason why they said that this works is because when you try to connect in these small moments during the day, you feel connected the whole day. So it's not like you have to be together 24-7. Just a few times throughout the day, you feel connected the whole day you're just in connection with your spouse. And the reason why I bring that up is how do we connect with God the whole day? It looks kind of like this, where it's not just having a moment in the morning where you pray for like 5-10 minutes. But regularly throughout the day, there are these small connection points that we have with God. I was personally shocked when I researched this, that you know in church history, nobody, no church prayed just one time a day. If you were a follower of Jesus, you either never prayed or you prayed at least three times a day. The idea of a person who prayed once a day, it's as weird as somebody who only eats breakfast once a day. There's no other meals to eat. I just eat once a day. That's kind of weird. You either are starving because you can't eat or you're eating like a three, three meals a day. That's how it was in church history. Christians always never prayed or it was three times a day. That's how it always was. For example, if you go all the way back to Israel, the Jewish people, the regular rhythm of prayer for them was they prayed in the morning, they prayed midday, and they prayed in the evening. Psalm 55 verse 17 says this, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears me. Evening, morning, and noon. That's not just to make a statement about the whole day. That's literally the way that the Jews prayed. Daniel, chapter 6, verse 10. The whole book of Daniel is about prayer. And look how Daniel prayed. Daniel got down on his knees three times a day and prayed as he had done previously. That's just the way people prayed back then. In the early church, they prayed spontaneously, but they also prayed regularly throughout the day. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we see now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. They note, oh, this is the regular prayer rhythm of the church. There's a set time where they pray during the day. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, look what it says. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's 12 o'clock. There's this rhythm of prayer that is actually very normal to them that's weird to us. But in reality, we're the weird ones. We're the weird ones that we are actually praying in this breakfast-only mode, whereas back then it was always a three-meal three day. The Didache, it's er the earliest church document that's there that we have written. It describes how the earliest followers of Jesus, that was just their lifestyle. Morning, midday, evening, praying all the time. Sometimes it's called the daily office. Some people call it the fixed hour of prayer. But no matter what, it was always just this rhythm of just praying regularly throughout the day. And this is really interesting because there's nowhere in the Bible that God says, pray three times. Like it's, you just can't find it. It's not in the book of the law. Jesus never says to pray three times. 
is just kind of something people did. And the reason why is because something is setting the rhythm of your life without you knowing it. For a lot of us here, maybe it's your meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner. That's how you keep track of how your day is going. For some of you, it's your work notification, the, the meetings and the appointments. That's what's keeping you going throughout the day. Or for some of you, it's all the days until vacation. You're just kind of counting it down. But something is setting the rhythm of your life. And without you knowing it, whatever you are fixing your attention towards, it is forming you. And you don't even realize how it's forming you. There's a study that these neuroscientists did where they described, do you know what the two most important moments of your day is for the development of your brain and consciousness? Meaning, these are the two moments of the day that shapes your entire day. Do you know what they are? Here are the two moments. Number one, what you think about right before you go to sleep. And number two, what you think about right when you wake up. That sets the entire tone for your whole day. What you think about going to bed and what you think about as soon as you wake up. Your brain fires up when you sleep. Your brain's shutting down as you go to bed. And what is in your mind in those moments shapes everything else that happens the rest of those 24 hours. What do you think about right before you go to bed? I know for a lot of us, it's you're on your phone, watching Netflix, scrolling on TikTok, chasing down weird, going weird places on the internet, just watching things mindlessly until you fall asleep. And then what's the first thing a lot of us do as soon as we wake up? You're on the phone, checking your email, checking your messenger, checking IG stories. And so no wonder a lot of us here throughout the day, you feel apathetic, you feel numb, you feel distracted because you are literally like hardwiring your brain every day, first and last thing with the device that numbs you, that distracts you, that keeps you anxious. So of course that's what your day looks like. That's the first and the last thing that you do. It is shaping who you are. But imagine the first thing you did and the last thing you did, and if you're really excited, in the middle of what you do, you take a moment to pause, to be still, and to spend time with the giver of life. When you are used to doing that, you are setting up your day where you are at the same time constantly in two places at once. You're worshiping here in church, but you're also aware of the presence of God. You're driving home in your car, but you're also, as you're driving, aware of the presence of God. You're with your kids, playing with them, while also aware of the presence of God. You're in your bed, ruminating about the day, about everything that went right and that went wrong, but also in the presence of God. When you get your mind to think that way, and you get your awareness, the first thing, the last thing, your whole day gets shaped. And that's why the early church, they were able to do the things that they did. Because that's just their rhythm. That was the normative, is you pray in the morning, you pray midday, you pray in the evening. Not because you have to pray three times, but that is the rhythm of how they scheduled their lives. Tyre Stanton, he wrote this great book on prayer. He says it this way, quote, for Jesus and his earliest followers, communion with God marked the passage of time Everything else happened a certain distance before or after prayer. Everything else was prioritized around prayer rather than prayer fitting in around competing practices. Communion with God, with the communion with the God of love was the center of life, the anchor for their every day. And you know what happens when that becomes your anchor? You're not just having a greater awareness of God, but interestingly enough, the power of God slowly comes into your life. 
For example, all the passages that I pointed to where it shows the rhythm of prayer, Daniel chapter 6, for example, what happened to Daniel's life? He resisted paganism in, the, in Persia. The lion's mouth closed up. Fascinating. In Acts chapter 3, what happened when the church was praying? The temple literally shook and freed Peter and John. In Acts chapter, nine, verse, chapter 10, verse 9, Peter was praying. He received a vision showing that the Gentiles are meant to be included into God's people. Unceasing prayer, in other words, when you are in that context, you're in that zone, the streams of water is pouring into your soul. It's just kind of a way of living. It's not just faithfulness, but the power of God is also coming right behind that. Unceasing prayer gives you the power to love your spouse when they are not deserving. They do not deserve your love because of the way they've been acting, but you just have this strange power to just love them despite that. Unceasing prayer gives you the ability to show patience to your incompetent coworker who is messing up over and over again, and for some reason you are able to not lose your temper. Unceasing prayer gives you joy despite the career setbacks that you are receiving in life. Un unceasing prayer, it has power. It has power. Because when you are praying unceasingly, the power of God is not far behind. And some of us, you really need this power. You really need this in your life. So how do we do this? How do we break this down? John Calvin, he says, if you want to do this, you must pray seven times a day. And he lists out the way he prays. It's like, dude, that's intense. Tim Keller, he wrote down, the, he prays five times a day. When he, when he was alive, he wrote down five prayers, and he just read those prayers five times a day. Again, really intense. And if that's our practice, it's like, oh, we're in trouble. And so what should we do to implement the idea of unceasing prayer? Let me just for our church suggest three practices, three things to consider. Number one is this, schedule your prayers. A lot of you are not able to pray, even during this whole prayer series, you're convicted to pray, you're like, I believe in prayer, but you're not praying because it is in the margins of your life. You are choosing the worst time to pray. Like our community group, we're so, you know, we're, we're so honest and we're like, hey, how was your prayer life this past week? Like I tried, but you know, I was in bed at 1 a.m. and I tried to pray and the next thing I knew was morning. It's like, dude, of course you're not going to pray if that's what you're doing. You have chosen the worst time in your day and squeezing God in with the leftover to pray. That's just not going to work. If you're a morning person, you should probably pray in the morning. If you're an evening person, you should probably pray in the evening. If you fall asleep in your bed, don't pray in your bed. It's not going to work the 10th time. Like it's going to happen every single time where you fall asleep. I know for me, I can't just sit down and pray. I just walk around my neighborhood praying all the time. I'm this crazy Asian person walking around, talking out loud. People actually like, who is that guy? I'm just like, I'm just praying, dude. I'm just praying around. Because that's the way, that's like my best moment to pray. But I have to schedule it. If it's just like I wing it, it's just not going to happen. It's like a guitar player trying to play jazz and you don't even know the chords. You got to know the chords. You got to schedule your prayer. Put that in there. Schedule your time to pray and make it a priority time. It's just 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Secondly, don't just schedule prayers, but here's a second challenge. Pray more than once a day. Again, this is your first time here, and you're like, I haven't prayed in years. Like, this is the first time I'm considering praying. It's a sermon series. Dude, just start there. Just start with a quiet time. Start with just trying to do your best to be still. Uh, download our, our, our How to Do a Quiet Time resource. So you just cannot grow in, in your intimacy with Jesus without starting somewhere. But a lot of you, you're just kind of there. Like you have a routine. Like, oh, I do my prayer thing 10, 15 minutes. Don't stay there. That's when it becomes religion. That's when it becomes this duty that's there. And again, no church in history ever prayed that way. Where it was just this one-time morning thing. Instead, how can you build a rhythm 
where you're prayerful throughout the day. And for me, you know, I've, I've, I've heard different ways of how to do it. And Calvin has his way. Keller has his way. This is the way that I've been trying to do it that I feel like is kind of manageable. And so this is my rhythm that of more than one time a day. In the morning, this is my prime time. So I don't pray in the evening. I pray in the morning. I have my quiet time. The resource that we have, I just go through that. I, I pause. I read the scripture. I ask. I yield. And it's just like 10, 15 minutes. And then at one point in the afternoon, sometimes before lunch, after lunch, I just really briefly for one minute the Lord's Prayer. It's just a moment to pause and to remember in the midst of work and the craziness of life, God is here. And I don't have energy to like do Lord and do this long. I just don't have the energy midday. I just pray the Lord's Prayer. It's like my autopilot reminder that God is here. And in the evening, right before I go to bed or some point, I, this is the hardest, by the way. I, the first two, actually, I could do it. That last one, like, you know, sometimes I watch Netflix too. I get it. But I try my best in the evening, just like two minutes. What are the things I could be thankful for what happened today? And I'm telling you when, you, when you pray this way, where it's not just this yoga morning thing, but it's like, no, it's like this relationship, this thing that's there throughout. The presence of God, the awareness of who God is, it just all of a sudden starts manifesting in this really interesting, powerful way. And for those of us here, again, if you have been praying that morning routine prayer all your life, but you're just not really feeling connected to the Lord, it could be because you're not praying the way you're supposed to pray. We're meant to be in constant, unceasing prayer. And it doesn't mean these three long prayer meetings. What can you do to be in communication with the Lord? And lastly, not just pray one time a day, but lastly, pray throughout your day. Meaning, what am I talking about that? Uh, Psalm 55 verse 17. Let me, let's look at that verse one more time. Very interesting. The psalmist says, evening, morning, and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears me. So he prays three times a day. And it's not like every morning, he goes, let me read from the common book of prayer as I pray. And he's like reading that. Like, oh, the afternoon, he's doing the same thing. That's not what he's doing. Well, how is he praying? In my complaints, in my moaning, I am praying to God. That's how the psalmist is praying throughout that time. Really interesting. Meaning, pray wherever you're at, however you're feeling, let God know. And a lot of us, we're not used to that because you're not really praying. A lot of you are pretending you have emotions that you filter to God, that even though you're really annoyed with your spouse, with your coworker, you try to clean yourself up going, Father God, and you just filter those emotions that are there. And that's why a lot of us don't like to pray because you don't like to be fake. And you've been taught to be fake and pretend when you pray versus realize God is not surprised by any of your emotions. If he is the God of the universe, be real with him. Be real in that moment. Include him not just in your cleanliness, but in your messiness. Not just when you're feeling spiritual, but when you're feeling angry. Include God in that space. Be aware of his presence in that space and see what he does with your anger. See what he does in your feeling of being unspiritual. That's real prayer. We have been pretending a lot, but the Bible is way more honest about how we should pray. Let God in the midst of all that you are doing in the space that you're at. He is not shocked by anything. And when you learn to pray like that, that's when God feels a little bit more real. That's when prayer actually feels like, wow, this is potentially doing something. And that's when, for you, you're able to now see that, oh, this is prayer out of the box. This is prayer out of my religious box that however I was formed, because this is real prayer. Schedule your prayer, do it more than once a day, and then do it throughout your day. Be just real in your prayers. And see how, how that happens. 
see how that shapes your prayer life. That could be the beginning of unceasing prayer. And that leads to the last point, which is, well, why should we do this? This seems like such a shift in the way we view prayer, so why pray this way? And Paul actually tells us. He gives us the answer. Look at verse 16 to 18 again, one more time. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is one of the few times in the Bible that describes explicitly what God's will is in your life. And if you're like me, this is a major downer. Because for me, if I want to know the will of God, I want to know the major things in my life. Like, who am I going to marry? Am I going to have kids? What are they going to be like? How am I going to die? Tell me the way I die. Like, I want to know those things to see, is this the will of God? But what's interesting is God doesn't talk about that in the Bible often. You know why? Because those big moments, how many of those do you have? Three? Five big moments in your life, it encompasses maybe 5%, 10% of your life at most. But the major decisions in your life, the 95% of your life, God is way more interested in letting you know what to do. The mundane, everyday, ordinary moments, what are you supposed to do? God reveals his will. This is what you do. And if you keep following God's will in those 95% of your days, you'll know what God's will is in that final 5% where it's a little bit less clear. And God's will for us is what? Pray without ceasing. Very interesting. Not pray with power. Not pray like faithfully, but he says, no, pray without ceasing. Why is that the will of God? And the best way to answer this is uh, there's a movie that got brought to my attention that I hope, this before this would have been a given. But now I don't know if everyone watched this movie. But have you guys seen this movie right here, The, the Notebook? You guys know what this is? Like, some of you have not seen this, and just know, it, it's, it's a terrible movie, and yet, it is a phenomenal movie. Like, it's like this mixture where if you watch it objectively, you're like, this movie is really bad. And yet, when you watch it and you finish it, you're, like, emotional, and you're, like, attached to these characters. And again, to give us all a refresher, do you remember what the movie's about? About this old man, and he's reading to this Alzheimer patient this story about this young couple falling in love. And the twist is that this old man and the Alzheimer patient, they're the couple, and he's retelling their story to her. And the movie, you know, the ending is so romantic because they're this old couple now, and they just, like, love each other and are embracing each other. And I realized that the reason why this movie is so bad yet so good is that it's so bad because it's, like, it's so cheesy in many ways. And yet we all end the movie thinking, I want that. I want to be like that old couple. I wish I could have somebody and have a love like that in my life. We all long for that. But notice in this movie, if you remember, the directors are smart. The movie talks about only the beginning of the relationship and the ending of the relationship. What about the in-between? They don't show that. They just skip forward to the end. Why? Because the in-between is boring. Fidelity is boring. Love is boring. Romance is exciting. Death is interesting. But love, this is boring stuff. To practice the daily routines, to say how is your day, to spend time eating breakfast together, to walk around the neighborhood, that's not the stuff of movies. Like why would people be bored to death watching that? But that's how relationships are formed. That's how you get to that ending where you see that old couple together madly in love. It wasn't because of the beginning of that relationship. It was everything in between. 
The story of the Bible is also a love story. It's like the notebook. It shows how your love began with God through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And it tells us the ending. There's a picture of us being old, this old withered person, marrying the Lord together in the wedding supper of the Lamb. But what happens in between? Boring fidelity, boring love, unceasing prayer. Unceasing prayer. That's what we're called to do, to keep that love alive. And it's hard because it's boring. Because love is boring. That's why a lot of marriages fail, because love is boring. And yet, when you keep at it, you're faithful in that boredom, does it cultivate this deep intimacy with one another? In fact, do you want to know a good sign that you are praying in a way that's producing fidelity and intimacy with God? It's when your prayers are boring and you keep at it. When you're excited in your prayers, you're still a noob. It's still like you're still young. Keep praying to the point where this is really boring, but I'm keep doing it. That's when you're like, oh, you're starting to enter that stream of water level prayer. Ronald Rolseiser, he wrote an example explaining this where he paints this picture. He says, imagine you have a sick mom and she's living in a nursing home. She's pretty much passing away. But imagine you visit your mother every single day in her nursing home after work. You bring her food. You ask her about her day. You share about your day. I doubt if you had that experience with your mom and that's your routine, that you have many deep conversations with her. It's just like, you know, how's your day? Just random stuff. And yet contrast that where imagine you have a sibling who does not visit every day, but she visits maybe once a quarter, once a year. Those conversations when she visits your mom, it might be emotional because she sees your mom sick. It might be long and filled with like all this deep conversation because, again, there's just all this stuff to catch up on. Who's closer to your mom? You, who visit every day with these small conversations, or your sister, your sibling, who visits once a year and is super deep and emotional. Of course, we all know it's that first one. But it doesn't feel like that because your conversations are mundane, it's small, it's tiny, it's little, it doesn't seem deep, and yet there is some type of deep consistency that's there where you know, him, you know her far better right now than your sister that visits once a year. That's unceasing prayer. That's what prayer does with the Lord. Roheiser, he summarizes like this, quote, if we pray only occasionally, we might well experience some pretty deep emotions in our prayer. However, if we pray faithfully every day, year in and year out, we can expect little excitement, lots of boredom, and regular temptations to look at the clock during prayer. But we can also expect through the years an ever-deepening intimacy with our God. That's unceasing prayer. And this is the type of prayer that Jesus prayed when he was here on earth. When Jesus came into the garden, do you think discipline drove him to pray in the garden of Gethsemane? Do you think discipline is what made him pray in that moment? No, Jesus prayed because he deeply knew the Father. And he wanted to be with God because that's all he is used to throughout his earthly life. And Jesus, he died on the cross for us so that you and I could experience the same type of intimacy with God. And you can do that. You are invited to do that every single day in prayer. But will you do it? Will you go through the boredom? Will you go through the mundane, the boring fidelity of what prayer is? That's when you're tapping into something that you are so out of the box of how we're taught to pray. 
and yet the streams of living water is going to pour into your soul slowly. So to close, let me just exhort for us a practice of what prayer looks like. Personally for us, every single day, every single day you have different things that's going to be presented to you. And yet, one thing is clear. You have 86,400 seconds to live each day. And God's will is for you to spend as many of those seconds being aware of his presence. Be aware of his presence as much as possible. That might mean you just taking a step aside just to be in the presence of God for a moment so that you could grow in awareness several times a day. Whatever it is, keep at it month by month, year by year. This is the will of God. That's for us personally. Corporately, though, we want to be a church that doesn't just pray continually individually, but we want to pray like together. We want this to be like a stream that just happens all the time. And so, again, church is great. Our community groups are great. But we also want to do this as, as a gathering. And so in 2024, one thing that we're going to do is we want to have prayer gatherings at our church where throughout this whole year, we're just dedicating Sundays once a month, 4 o'clock. Whoever wants to, you are invited. Come and pray with our church. We hope the first gathering could be at the end of this month in February. Uh, and we hope this could be a space for us to just gather together and to pray. But until then, I just really exhort us, in the midst of our lives, where we commit ourselves to just being in that stream, being in that flow of just unceasing prayer, knowing that it's leading to a deep type of intimacy that God is inviting us to, that Jesus experienced, and that he's asking us to experience. So let me pray for us, and then we'll come to a time of prayer in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.